Welcome to Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans, and today we're going to talk about the transgender bills that we keep seeing state after state either implement or at least discuss in their state legislatures. Why does this topic keep rising to the surface? Why does it seem that Republican legislatures in all of these states are focused on proposing bills that affect transgender lives? So to discuss this topic, I've invited two guests today to the program. Yasmin Basin Casino, professor and chair of sociology at Montclair State University and the editor of Contemporary Sociology is my first guest. Her research focuses on work, gender, and youth, and her work has appeared in many sociology journals such as Context, Journal of Contemporary Ethnography, and Theory and Society, and her work has been featured in many popular venues like the Washington Post, The Atlantic, CNN, Fortune, and Ms. Magazine. And my second guest today is Dan Casino, who is a professor of government and politics at Fairleigh Dickinson University, and he's the director of the FDU poll. He has written widely on political psychology and gender, and his most recent book, actually with my first guest, is titled Gender Threat, American Masculinity in the Face of Change. So let me start off by saying thank you both for being on the program. Thank you for having us. Pleasure to be here. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, there is a lot happening within states right now regarding policies targeted around sexual orientation and gender identity. For those listeners who are interested in learning more about what's happening in their own states, you can check out an organization called Freedom for All Americans, which tracks bills and legislatures all around the country. They have a section specifically on anti-LGBTQ legislation things about school policies, youth sports, healthcare, and so forth. And over on their main page this morning, as I was scrolling, what I was seeing were bills in places like Alabama, Montana, South Carolina, Tennessee, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Utah, Alaska, Mississippi. The list goes on and on, and it really has ramped up over the past month or so. So if you're like me and my students, you might be wondering, what's going on? Why are we now talking about this topic? So I think we have to start in the beginning. Um, So my first question is actually for you, Dan. How many people do these bills actually affect in these states? For me, that's really one of the really interesting puzzles of this, is that if this was a major issue of societal concern, if there were lots and lots of people this was affecting, we can understand why we're getting so much attention to this in state legislatures. I think it was really nicely highlighted by the governor of Utah when he uh, vetoed a bill about transgender ath- access to sports. In his veto message, which his veto was later overrule- overturned by the state legislature, he said, we are talking about literally five children in the state of Utah, none of whom are at the top of their sport. Why are we worried about this? We should just be dealing with, I mean, a law targeting five people in an entire state. It seems a little ridiculous for spending so much time talking about this. Now, of course, there are far more transgender and members of sexual orientation and gender identity minorities among the newest generation, among younger people than there are in older generations. Uh, Part of that's because people feel more comfortable talking about these things and being out in different ways, in ways that people in older generations don't even know what in the world they're talking about. But so there are more among young people, but it's still a very small group of people, especially when we're talking about transgender teens. Now, I noticed, and one of the reasons I asked you both to come on the show today is the piece in the monkey cage that came out about a week ago that discusses how gender identity relates to men 
moving themselves over to the GOP. So Diane, another question for you is like, how, how does that work? So this is actually an interesting experiment that uh, Yasmin and I carried out where we, uh, we, so we initially did our own experiment where we went in, this is an online survey, non-representative. And I come from this, from political psychology background. In political psychology, one of the things, one of our big findings is if you want to change people's attitudes, you got to scare the tar out of them. So we try all these different ways to scare the tar out of people. And it turns out that gender identity threats, scaring men with the idea that maybe you're not as macho as you think, that is a more potent threat than scaring them with the idea they might die. So we, we like using this threat as much as possible. And really a lot of our research on this comes out of this finding that boy, men get really threatened if there's even a subtle threat to their gender identity and their attitudes change. And so what we found here is if we just even bring up the idea that, hey, you know, gender is non-binary, you know, people are, exist on a spectrum, you know, can you place yourself on a spectrum? Even that very subtle, hey, there is such a thing as a spectrum of gender identity between masculinity and femininity, that scares them enough that those men become more conservative, more Republican in response to it. Now, Yasmin, how exactly, when we talk about gender identity, how it's not easy to measure, right? Like how, how do we measure that or how do we include that into a survey like this? That's a great question. And I think this is something that sociologists have been working on for a long time. And most of the time we look at it in a spectrum as a continuum. And and we wanted to see how we can incorporate this into a survey. But we noticed even methodologically, the fact that we ask about gender on a continuum caused such a threat among certain men that they changed their social views and political views. And and that's uh, one of the first places we thought about this idea of a gender threat. And we should note, like survey research in general does a really bad job of measuring sex and gender. So if you go into any major survey, like GSS, ANES, these giant multi-million dollar surveys, they have a variable called gender. And the variable called gender is male or female. And it's generally only based on what, on a telephone interview, what the interviewer thought the person sounded like. Because there's thought, oh, you can't ask people if it's a man or woman, they're going to get upset and they'll hang up the phone. So this is really interesting. I'm thinking back to my time at Indiana University and I was teaching a course one time. We wanted to do a survey of all the students and, and we were looking at like who engages in elections and who doesn't engage in elections. One of my students, their, their research proposal was to look at uh, not gender identity so much as sexual orientation. So how does sexual orientation affect whether you engage in elections? And I told them, go to the Kinsey Institute, find the scale. And they use the scale. And I remember that when we stuck that question in that survey and sent it out, we got complaints, even from just thinking about sexual orientation on a scale. So what kind of feedback have you had over these sorts of questions about gender being on a scale? Oh, a lot. I think a lot of men get very upset, even the fact that it's on there. A lot of them create new boxes. A lot of them write back. A lot of them say like they are super macho uh, Apache helicopters. <laughs> and I think like this has uh, come up in a lot of surveys and people have wondered, is this a mistake? Is this an outlier? But it's not. It's uh, if you look at the outliers and I think going back to our like uh, methodological training, we were always told, look at the outliers. There might be something with them. And this was a substantive finding that the outliers were important, that men were trying to tell us something. Yeah, and a shocking number of the men will put themselves, and women, like so about half of Americans will put themselves on any gender scale they give them. So we've done this on a zero to 100 scale, a one to six scale, doesn't matter. About half of Americans will put themselves on the extreme ends of the scale, as masculine as possible to the man, as feminine as possible if they're women. But overall, 
people don't refuse to answer the question, which is always the threat, is that people are going to say, oh, I just, I'm not going to answer that question. And we don't see much of that. It's actually about the same refusal rate you'd get asking people income. So it's not a huge refusal rate, but it is definitely a way for people to assert a gender identity. Say, I'm as macho as you can be, or I'm as feminine as you can be. And of course, women are much more open to be masculine because that's so desirable than men are to being feminine. Yeah. Uh, and the one example from Indiana, when they did put that in there, I remember getting like hate mail from people who took the survey to say like, I can't believe you would ask this question. And, and I was referred to as madam. That was also kind of comical for me. It was like this email that the title of it was just madam. I cannot believe you would ask such a question. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, but sexual orientation is not just binary. Like you there there's different levels. And so oh, with, with this project that you're doing, you mentioned that you use different scales, sometimes a shorter scale, sometimes a larger scale. Um, so it doesn't matter what the size of that scale is. Are you still finding the same things? I think similar, uh, the same men who react to, um, the same scale, I think, uh, react in I, almost every forum. And this is to mention that this is not all men. A lot of men have been embracing this. A lot of men have been adjusting and a lot of men have been finding uh, new identities and redefining masculinity. I think that was one of the things I enjoyed about this study that um, gender wasn't set. Gender was fluid and changing and identity was changing. And a lot of men were saying, okay, here's a new way to be a man and let me embrace this uh, new masculinity. Now, are these findings about gender identity on par with findings like racial identity or ethnicity or education or any of these factors that usually social scientists use to link up with voting? Is it the same? Uh, no, actually. So among men, at least, uh, gender identity actually is a more is more tightly correlated with political views than racial identity or religious identities. And the reason for that is that men's racial identity is rarely in question, right? It's a, only a small group of people where it's up in the air which racial group they're part of, which racial group they're trying to assert themselves to be a part of, where men's gender identity is always up in the air. And this is one of the bigger issues. The reason that men are so responsive to this is because men are constantly surveilling themselves to find out, am I being masculine enough, right? There's this idea in sociology of hegemonic masculinity, this sort of uh, unattainable ideal of what it means to be a man, right? You should be, you know, tall and muscular and successful and have lots of children and also be the decision maker in your household and also this and this and this, and it's impossible. And no one does it, which is the point. And so because no one actually meets that standard, Men are saying, oh my God, am I, am I macho enough? Am I masculine enough? What, what if I'm not? What if I, oh my God, what if someone finds out I'm not? And that sort of threat drives political behavior. Also, gender is just much more relevant to everyday lives. When people are walking down the street, uh, men and women are very conscious of their gender and the gender of everyone around them. And this is actually one of the issues with transgender identity is that people say they're, they're weirded out by it. Like, but I don't know, is it a man or a woman? They don't know how to treat someone socially. And the answer to that is, of course, well, maybe you should treat them like a person and not worry about it. But this is still, it still structures all of our social interactions. So it's actually much more powerful. Uh, and of course, in recent years, it's become much more correlated with partisanship. Now, are there other issues like this, other than thinking about, I guess, gender in this fluid way that have a similar impact? I think, yeah. I think probably income. Well, uh, or, or we ask, or relative income is a big one that we've actually okay. used as a, as a thread in the past. And that's where our study actually started. We were looking, I think this was the last um, uh, recession. We were looking at uh, how men and women divide housework in heterosexual um, 
uh, uh, married couples. And when we were looking at, uh, especially uh, after the last recession, when a lot of men lost their income or men lost their jobs and a lot of families where women became the primary um, breadwinners, we were wondering what happens to that relationship? What happens to that division of labor at home? And we were hoping that, you know, if men lost their jobs, maybe they embrace childcare more or housework more. But what we found was something um, the opposite, that a lot of those men who lost relative income relative to their wives started doing even less work, less childcare and less housework. And this was a gender identity thing for them. And, and it was really funny. It didn't matter how much money they made. They just wanted to make just a little bit more than that particular woman. Wow. Yeah. And I, need, I need to know more about this. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. I mean, this is... No. I, this is a, just a continuing theme in our research. Anything that is bad for the world winds up being good for our research, right? Because it gets its variance, right? The 2000 right. recession was amazing because we had all these, the first wave of the recession really hit men dominantly, right? People in extractive industries and construction, dominantly men, they lost their jobs, the wives didn't. And what you see is they become, as a result of that, because in longitudinal surveys, so you ask the same person again and again, they become more conservative. Uh, they get more conservative racial views, more conservative gender views, uh, and become more Republican. Although we do get some degree of polarization, where Republican men become more conservative, Democratic men become more liberal, right? So they're embracing, as Yasmin was saying a moment ago, uh, these new forms of, of gender identity, these new political forms that uh, correspond with the way they're understanding themselves. And they're redefining masculinity. Some of them um, talk about how they're um, in charge of the health of the family. So they feed their kids uh, good things, they exercise with their kids, or they're like the moral leaders of the family, or they do childcare. So for some, a very small portion of men, we do have, we do have hope. And I, I was just thinking about the recession, but then also comparing that to what has happened during COVID, where women have really been the, the, the cohort that's been hit the hardest economically during COVID. So I wonder then if it's like, I don't know, is, is it balanced? I don't, I don't, I don't know. Uh, the, the answer is absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely so, not. <laughs> uh, so we, yeah, we had a paper on this that came out last year about uh, really looking in particular at uh, homeschooling, right? Which is, as any parent knows, if you had kids during session, that was the word during the COVID, that was the worst part, right? Is doing the homeschooling. And the question is, who does it? And the answer is, if men are basically threatened and stressed out, they just stop doing that. They don't do the homeschooling and that falls entirely on the women. Um, we also see that men whose gender identities seem to be threatened, right? So men who report a threat of gender identity, uh, or we induce a threat of gender identity, wind up telling us, well, I don't wear a mask, right? They're trying to show, or I'm not going to get a COVID shot, or COVID's not really that bad, right? Because they're trying to assert a gender identity to assert strength and toughness in the face of the COVID pandemic, which winds up being bad. And so what our big finds on that is they're, therefore, those men who assert this super masculine gender identity are about three times likely to get COVID and about three times likely to die. Whoa. Yeah. That, that's, that's an amazing finding. Um, so for those who are just tuning in, Hey, I bet you're enjoying this conversation as much as I am. My name is Heather Evans and you're on red, white, and confused today. I'm chatting with two guests about their work on gender identity and uh, masculinity, as well as transgender bills that we keep seeing out of different various States around the country. Uh, so I'm joined by Yasmin Bassin Casino, who is professor and chair of sociology at Montclair State University, as well as Dan Casino, who is professor of government and politics at Fairleigh Dickinson University. So let's get back into these transgender bills. So why are Republicans pushing these bills? Well, I think because they can, because they can. 
uh, especially when men are faced with a threat. And I think COVID-19 has made it uh, possible because a lot of them lost their jobs, a lot of them are at home, and a lot of them uh, see this new threat, both economically and socially. And in the face of this economic and social threat, I think Republicans are on purpose targeting uh, these gender identities and scaring men with um, new changes. Yeah, and we see in the data, right? So if we, what we see is if you even mention the idea that gender is gender and sex are different things, right? There's it, it all exists on a continuum. This is upsetting, right? If you have if your entire identity is built around I am a man, I am masculine. Here are the roles. Here's what it means to be masculine. I have this very traditional idea of what that means. The idea that no, it's fluid. It's things move around. It's not set. That is a threat. Right, that represents a threat, and threat in this case, gender identity threat, leads men to become more Republican. So, if you're a Republican leg state legislator, this is actually really good politics in that it builds up your base. We've also seen uh, in the 2020 election, especially, people were very confused like, wait, why did President Trump, who was running for re election, why did he do better among African Americans and among Hispanics? They did in 2016. That doesn't make any sense. And the reason is because I did better among African American Hispanics generally. He did better among African American Hispanic men. That is, groups of men who have traditional masculine gender identities, the same, and they're actually slightly more likely to hold those traditional gender identities than uh, white men are. And as a result, they wind up being pushed over to the Republican Party. It actually opens up a new ground for the Republican Party among racial minority groups that they were having trouble getting with before. So this is actually very good politics, regardless of what you think about the uh, impact of the bills on anyone's life. Yeah. So uh, I'm here in Virginia, and last year during the Virginia state legislature elections and the governor election and all of that, in school board after school board after school board, what we were seeing is groups of people coming out and shouting about critical race theory and then also the model policies in Virginia regarding bathroom policies and, and so forth involving transgender children. And as this was happening in school board after school board, I kept thinking this is all about the now these were happening in the summer. So the summer before the election, but I kept thinking this is all related to the election. So in y'all's minds, looking at the data and looking at how often this is happening now, do you think this is directly related to 2022? Uh, yes, and I think it's a part of a bigger picture. And I think what really surprised us, because this all started as a small study on um, division of housework, but this wasn't just about housework or gender. This is a part of a bigger, bigger identity and bigger plan. What we're seeing are men are becoming, especially when they're threatened uh, economically and socially, that they change their behavior, they change their politics. They tend to buy more guns and support guns and they become more anti-LGBTQ. And it's not surprising that uh, we're seeing all these changes on different fronts. And you can also link it very much with other traditional ways of asserting masculinity. So one of these uh, masculine gender identities, the traits they have, is the idea of protecting the family. And so this has all been packaged as a way of, we need to fight or get rid of transgender people or not have, you know, not talk about sexuality in the classroom as a way of protecting the family. And that's a very potent way for people to assert a gender identity, especially for men to assert the gender identity, say, oh, I'm protecting people, right? So you've got that one-two punch, right? I'm threatening you. And I'm giving a way to assert your gender identity by, uh, by uh, following this bill. The other part of this is really the way in which bills uh, propagate across the country. And there's very good research in political science on this about the way, basically, you know, we talk about the states as being laboratories of democracy, 
Well, that's what we're seeing. It is laboratories of what works in the Republican primary. And so he's got these bills. So he says with you know, Texas abortion ban, right? Here's a novel way of getting around federal review. And everyone goes, oh, shoot, that works. Awesome. And there are, of course, some organizations who are devoted to doing this, to spreading uh, on both Democratic and Republican side, to spreading uh, bills that seem to work well. And really, they could, people in the Alabama state legislature can re watch CNN the same way anyone else can, right? And say, oh, this bill worked in Texas, this bill worked in Virginia, we're going to bring it up here. So it spreads across uh, because it works. Yeah. And honestly, if you look at the elections that happened in Virginia this past year, Republicans swept it, right? And so if Republicans are sweeping it and, and this kind of grassroots mobilization around some of these issues within school boards can then spill over and keep those people activated for that election... Why not continue to do that? So I also think that it's smart politics on there. It's their interesting you mentioned school boards. I think this has to do with, it, it goes back to fatherhood and definitions of masculinity, that that's what they've been uh, using a lot, that this is a way to protect your family and keep them safe. And, and I think it all starts with school boards. And I think same with uh, uh, mask, the anti-mask movements or anti-COVID um, uh, shot movements. Uh, it's a lot of men going, I am going to protect my family. And that's where it's really problematic. And, you know, this is also, this is not new. So if we were, you were paying attention to politics in 2002, 2004, 2006, 2008, you saw the same thing happening with anti-gay marriage bills, right? In 2004, mm -hmm. Republicans were pushing to get them on the ballot. They, this would help uh, George Bush win re-election if people also got to come out and vote against gay marriage. So the question is, what happened there, right? Now we have widespread acceptance of gay marriage and marriage equality, uh, even among most Republicans, although there's still certainly a group that's pushing back against that. Uh, but what happened was we got greater acceptance of gay marriage and marriage equality and gay rights because people people came out of the closet. So we had this virtuous cycle where people were more accepting. So more people came out of the closet admitted to being homosexual. And so more people knew someone was homosexual. So they said, well, it's my aunt or whatever. So they were more accepting. So more people came out and we get this virtuous cycle. That seems unlikely to happen with transgender people simply because it's a much smaller group. Right. So this is an easier group to pick on because there's fewer of them, because you're less likely to know someone that is. Now, we should say that is true among our generation, among people who are over 30. People who are under 30, they're much more likely to know someone who's transgendered or you know, member of a sexual orientation generated any minority group. And that's going to make this a much tougher smell, much, much tougher sell among that younger group. And this, I think, really is part of the Republican Party's long term challenge is that they're doing increasingly well among older white people. And they're even winning over some older non-white people. And that's good politics right now, but they are really damaging their standing among people under 30. And in 30 years, that's gonna be your problem because we all know partisanship is really sticky. And if you upset people now and turn against them now, they're never gonna come back. I can tell you my sainted grandmother who lives in Tucson, Arizona, is a Republican, has been for life because Harry Truman is a crook. <laughs> uh, so if you gave advice to Democrats right now, right, it, I mean, I'm looking at this thinking, okay, Republicans keep doing this. Obviously, this is affecting men, as your research has shown, it's affecting men. How can Democrats kind of deal with that? Like, do, what should they be doing? Should they be, I mean, should they be focused on something else? Should they be kind of like, I, I don't know, like what? We're, we're putting, I guess, Democrats in a corner in terms of this and, and these male votes are being siphoned off by the Republicans. Can they do anything to not let that happen? Well, they don't have to be. The good news is gender isn't rigid. Gender isn't binary. Gender isn't, it, it, it changes. So the good news is they can actually activate this gender threat as well. And they can uh, focus on better models of masculinity. There are good ways of um, being a man. 
And I think that's what they can focus on. I, and look, I think also part of this is to do what happened with marriage equality and with gay rights in general is to personalize the issue saying, all right, we can talk about this. Oh, gays are bad. All right. Well, here's a homosexual person. What would you, this is the person you're targeting. And I think the more you bring forward actual, you know, the people who are actually affected by these laws, the harder it is to say, oh, I'm trying to stop that child, that child from doing something. I'm targeting that person. So personalizing it. And as Yasmin said, there are lots of alternate models of masculinity. Masculinity is not monolithic. There's lots of ways to be a man. Masculinity is incredibly, you know, is incredibly flexible. Um, you know, we, one of our papers we did on this showed how cooking went from being something men did to assert that they were not men, that they were, you know, they avoided cooking to assert they were men, to something they did to show they were men, right? And that happened in a 10 year period. So you can change this, right? So you read, so you make this about masculinity, say, oh, this is about masculinity as protector. You're trying to protect the most vulnerable people around you. Oh, you're trying to protect, right? You're trying to do something else and make this a different form of masculinity. That masculinity is not about striking out at people. Masculinity is about protecting the vulnerable. And that's a very different form of masculinity that leads you to different political conclusions. Uh, the Republican Party has been very good about putting forward their version of masculinity. The Democratic Party has not been as good about it as saying, this is what we think it means to be a man. And we do have some models for that. I point uh, to New Jersey Senator Cory Booker as someone who talks a lot about the political power of love and how being a man is about accepting people and loving people and showing strength through compassion. Well, that's a version of masculinity that people can get behind that is much more favorable to the Democrats. Yeah. And I wonder, do you think that the governors who are pushing back against these bills will have any kind of impact on the way that men also view this issue? Because those are Republican Republican governors who are vetoing these and then they're being overridden, but still they're, they're at least putting out statements about this. Right. It depends the extent to which this gets picked up in the media, right? Because this is very much driven by elites. This is a novel political issue. People have not been thinking about it. And so they're going to look for cues from political elites as to what they should think about this. So the question is how many of those governors wind up on Fox News explaining their viewpoint on this? So far, not many, um, but that's the question you have to look for. Well, thank you both for being on the show. This has been a pleasure to have this conversation with you today. And it gives me a lot to think about everyone on the, that's listening. Hopefully you're thinking more about this issue as well and how this issue is going to affect the 2022 election. I honestly think that everything is tied to elections, right? How do we frame something? How do we activate people? How do we, you know, get people to come and vote on our ticket versus another ticket? So thanks to both of you for being on the show. Thank you for having us. It was great fun. Um, and if anyone out there listening missed any piece of this today, you can catch up again on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great week. 